Well, it's my joy to welcome uh, Joel Serich up to preach for us this morning. Uh, I've asked Joel to preach uh, because he's a man of God, he's a man of character, and he um, has, you know, been involved in theological training in the past. Um, he's a teacher at Tungabi Christian School. Uh, he preaches at various other churches, and I'd love to sit under his ministry this morning. Uh, Joel's got a lovely family, if you haven't met them. Um, uh, Amalia is probably in the kids' work. Um, Tobias. Tobias and Jamie. Um, you know, when you get up and then suddenly it all just drains out of your head. It's the shoes. It's the shoe. It's because I'm not wearing... I thought, hey, I'm not preaching today. I don't have to wear shoes. So... <laughs> I'm in, I'm in sandals. Um, next week when Shinu's preaching, I'm not even going to come. Uh, <laughs> I'm just so relaxed. It's so good. Uh, but I've been uh, working with Joel, looking at his manuscript. Um, he's going to be preaching from uh, Psalm 27 today. Uh, and it's, it's a great text. Um, and Joel's put together a great message. Uh, and so let's lean in um, as Joel preaches God's word. Uh, not because it's Joel, but because it's God's word speaking to us. So I'm going to pray for Joel now. Would you join me in prayer and then I'll let him get into it. Lord, we thank you so much for Joel um, and the Serex. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would bless him as he preaches. May he enjoy your word as he expounds it for us. Would you help us to humbly sit under your word this morning and may you bless the preaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. Amen. Amen. Uh, so Amalia, my daughter, likes to play this game where dad... You're the, you're the mouse and I'm the tiger. And it basically means I have to run away from her because she's going to eat me. And um, yeah, this is all fun and good. I play for a little bit. So sometimes, I still do it even though I know her reaction. I say, well, actually, Amalia, I'm the tiger, you're the mouse. And all I have to do is go, rah! And she goes, ah! She gets really frightened by it. Even though it's, I'm still her dad, um, it just really takes her back. Um, and uh, we happened to um, be over at the Poblets yesterday, and Dawson and Amalia were actually playing this game where they were playing monster something, you know? It's, it's ingrained into the child's mind. I don't know how, but there is this fear that starts even at that very young age, uh, you know, playing monsters, and, you know, you even have TV shows that, you know, tap into that monster and kind of subvert it with Sesame Street, for example. I wasn't actually allowed to watch. No, I was. No, I'm not sure. Anyway, the point is, you know, there's that monster motif that runs throughout, I guess, the, the human story in a way. And <clears throat> it reminds me of, uh, you know, the monster under the bed. Well, I was, I was uh, sleeping one night and I woke up terribly, terrible, terrible fear. There was something on my face. You know, that's probably the worst thing, you, you know, sleeping and then all of a sudden you wake up and there's something on your face. This weight was just pressing on my face. I had no idea what it was. I froze for a bit and then I just moved slightly and it fell off and then my hand started to get blood back in it and I could feel it was my own hand. <laughs> so what had happened and I had... I had somehow laid on my hand, it had fallen asleep, and because, you know, as we know, it goes numb, I couldn't feel that it was my own hand on my own face. Uh, one of the scariest times ever sleeping. Oh, fear, isn't it? You know, fear is a reality that we all face in our life. You know, whether it's the comical or the, the distressing fear of, of knowing, you know, of a diagnosis that you, you didn't want to receive or the distressing fear 
associated with the call from a family member who says such and such has been in an accident. You know, these, these moments of, of intense, distressing emotional states, the uncertainty is what produces the fear. It unsettles us. It, it shakes the very foundation of our security. Whether the threat is real or imagined. You know, and these times of fear can have a multiplicity of reactions. You know, it can result in paralysis, inability to do anything. It can result in aggression, lashing out, trying to to attack, resignation, just a defeat, despair. I can't handle this. And a sense of being overwhelmed. There are so many different ways of responding to fear. And the difference between how fear results depends on how one handles those moments of crisis and how they tackle those circumstances of fear and where they place their security in those uncertain times. And this is what we're going to see today in Psalm 27. It is a great psalm. All of the psalms are great. But this one taps on the, the reality of fear that can grip us at multiple points in life. And we, we will see that David chooses to place his confidence and security in God. And that is what we are to do as well. It is an encouragement for us to respond in a similar way, faced with the uncertainties in life. When the lack of security threatens us to the very core, when our sense of control is threatened... And we feel out of control. We're to place our confidence and security in God in the face of all fears. Not some, all fears. But before we go any further, let's, let's pray. That's always important. Dad in heaven, you are greatest, greatest of all. You are the king who is sovereign over everything. And yet you defeated the one thing that we should be absolutely terrified of, and that is eternal separation, eternal death from you. But we weren't even aware of that, as we, we heard this morning, hell-bound, bell, hell running towards hell. But you delivered us from that. And I just ask as we look into this passage that we might have the confidence to say, in those moments of real fear, that God, you are my security because our salvation is secure in you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so I would like to encourage you to look at the scripture as we go through. We're going to look at Psalm 27. We're going to start off with verses 1 to 3. And we're going to see that like David, this is our first point, like David, where to place our confidence in the Lord, even with legitimate reasons to be afraid. So, placing confidence in the Lord, even with legitimate reasons to be afraid. And we see in this passage that David faces very real dangers, those that seek to harm him. He says in verses 2, 3 to A, when evildoers assail me, my adversaries and foes, though an army encamp against me, the war arise against me. This is an ever-present fear, something that can snuff out his life. We're not told what, but we know from reading into David's life that there were numerous times when he had legitimate reasons to fear. So we see here that he is acknowledging the present reality. Christianity is not a religion of delusion. 
It's not about just sensing your mind away from the problem. Don't, it doesn't exist. It's all an illusion. No, Christianity understands that reality is a part of being human. It's not an illusion. And there are things that can genuinely do us damage. And we have fear. And we see that David overcame such pressed moments through his trust and confidence in God. God is his confidence. He doesn't place it in himself. That is a shaky foundation. Because the odds are against him, stacked against him. He even says, an army account against me. Have you ever felt those moments where you feel like you're the only one and you have the whole world against you? Or life against you? Things are just not working out. But he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no one. He says, the Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? David's not ultimately, um, ultimately afraid because his security is not grounded on himself. Not grounded in the circumstances around him. And he knows that even though the darkness of his situation that God's light will pierce through that. So much of fear is shrouded in the darkness, in the lack of clarity. Fear breeds in darkness. And yet David says, I don't need to worry about that. Whom should I be afraid? Because God is my light. God is, we are told elsewhere in Scripture, is light. There is no darkness in him. He is the complete exposer of anything that is to be afraid of. He, he, he exposes it and then just dominates over it. And we see the parallel use of, of, a, of um, a metaphor to say that the security is found in God. We said, he's a stronghold of my life. So many of these fears unsettle us. The very foundations of what we stand on, what we think to be true, are questioned. And yet David says, my Lord is a stronghold. He places his reality in the reality that God is his stronghold. He doesn't need to provide a stronghold. God is his stronghold. So even in this situation, whatever it might be, that David finds himself in, uncontrollable circumstances, God is his light and salvation. People may come to destroy him. People may come to destroy you. Life might seem to be out to get you, but they will be repelled because God is your salvation. So much so that we see that David actually goes so far to boldly state that when these forces, these evil forces, assault him in verse 2, he says, it is they who stumble and fall. Despite all of the challenges, David is so bold to say, they will fall. You know, he's confident. He says, I will be confident in verse 3. His security is in the Lord. And it's not an abstract, purely cognitive experience. It's a personal one. It's a personally felt reality in the goodness of God where he says, as you see the number of pronouns that are used, my light, my salvation... Stronghold of my life. My heart will not be afraid. He has a deep, personal, personal understanding that his salvation 
His security, his strength is found in the Lord. And this is only because he knows who the Lord is personally. He knows God. This is why he's not shaken by the fear. The destabilizing effect of fear is surpassed by his knowledge of God, his heart knowledge of God. And this is what we need, isn't it, in our moments of life where we feel great insecurity. Turning to God rather than this sense of broken self-reliance. But we do it so often. Our hearts tend to want to follow that way. And yet it is broken. Which leads us to a proper response, one of security found in the Lord, which outflows into worship. Just as David responds in verses 4 to 6, we'll notice that David's security comes from worshipping God, giving God his first place position in his life. And this overflows into more worship. So this is our next point. Verses 4 to 6 show that David's security comes from worshipping God, giving God his first place position in his life. And this overflows into more worship. It's like a cascading effect. We read in verse 4, I think it's a surprising line. He says, one thing I ask, this is what I seek. You might, be, it might, you might expect to say, one thing I ask, smash their skulls in, drive them away, get an enemy. for." No, he says, one thing I ask, this is what I seek. <clears throat> he says, to be in the presence of the Lord. Just be in the presence of the Lord. Not a state of doing, but a, state, a posture of being in God. He seeks God because he knows, ultimately, everything is under the sovereign God, guidance of God. Have a look at verse 5. He's devoted completely to God, despite everything that you could question. Well, where is God in this? Why do I have enemies around me? Why do I have people who want to take my life? But he knows who he is under. He's not under fear, he's under God. He says, all the days of my life, he yearns to be in the presence of God. And he says, to dwell in the house of God. In other words, to be in the very presence of God. David knows the true worth of God. And his desire is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. When was the last time you thought about the beauty of the Lord? So often we think of God, the Almighty, the Strong, the Powerful. God, the Beautiful? But God is beautiful because of who He is. Worship. Worship has captivated David's heart, not fear. You can only focus on one thing at a time. It could be in David's life and in ours, fear, or we can replace it, push it out of the way with confident hope in God and worshipping God. It's just like I love gardening. And when I garden, there's no point pulling up weeds and leaving barren ground. It will just be replaced with more weeds. So I get a mulch and I just mulch it. 
and I've covered it with something else, and the weeds do not come back, and it looks good. That's what we need to be doing with fear when it comes to our life. We need to be captivated by the goodness of God. Captivated. Is he your treasure? Is he your light? Is he something that you're mesmerized by? I know that I need this. But so often, we prefer the junk food. You know, we have a cupboard, a fridge full of all of this healthy, good stuff that tastes good too, but for whatever reason, we crave that junk. And we go to it, and we eat it, and we feel terrible. But we'll do it again. We need to eat nutritious, good, dense, nutritionally dense food. And it's likewise, you know, in our, we need to, in our lives, we, we prefer to run away, to go to things that solve it, you know, whether that's video games or, or whether that's having conversations or fantasizing about being in a relationship or what have you. We tend to do that, eat junk, rather than the nutritionally dense richness of God's beauty in our heart, the nourishing good stuff. You know, and C.S. Lewis, he, he uses his analogy. He says, we're like kids content to play and make mud pies rather than seeking the pure richness and fullness of a rich, dense, thick chocolate cake. That is healthy. Don't ask me how they work together, but it just has to serve my analogy. You know, so it's not about suppressing not about suppressing, denying, ignoring the fear. It's about surpassing, going over the top of. That is the beauty of the richness of the worldview of Christianity, that it's reality with reality. It's not, it's not an illusion. It's not, it, it speaks truth into our existence, that there is God who, who has us has us. So let's drink deeply of the soul-quenching goodness of God. As, for example, in Matthew 5, 6, where Jesus says in the Beatitudes, those who thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. It's guaranteed. Let's ask the Lord to refresh our souls. This is something I've been really thinking about with my wife as well. Wanting to refresh my soul and wanting to see his glory for who he is. And it's, you know, not going through the motions of worship or, or devotion, like a mechanical sense or an obligation or anything like that, but more like wanting to get to know the person who knows me more than I know me. Be in the presence of the host. May this be our greatest desire too, just like David. He wants to be in the presence of God in his house. This is where security comes from. And this is why we see in verse 5, David says, He will keep you safe in his dwelling. He will hide you in the shelter of his tabernacle. God is his hiding place. He is our hiding place too. And once again, we see a flip around of the situation for David. In verse 6, we see him saying boldly once again, actually, I'm going to be raised above my enemies. 
He says, and now my head shall be lifted up. And this is where, because he knows he's going to be lifted up, ultimately, it leads him into further worship. He says, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. This is praise despite very real trouble. Praise despite pain. It's, how is it that someone can be in such a situation of fear and yet do the antithesis of fear, which is to sing praises of joy? But we see this in the Scriptures time and time again, don't we? When you know, Christians are, are put in positions of persecution and positions of vulnerability, they don't cave into that and crumple in a heap. They sing for joy. You just need to read accounts of the martyrs who joyfully go and suffer. Read in the Bible of um, you know, the apostles singing in prison. Wow. As their legs are probably chafed by the chains. I will be lifted up and I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Now, you might be tempted at this point to think, well, my life's pretty secure at the moment. I live in Australia. It's a good country. I know where I sleep. I know what I eat. I know where I work. I know everything is sorted out, locked away. It's great. Well, this is a blessing, first of all. But another problem is, is if we place our security in these things that appear to be solid, when life takes a dramatic change, dramatic changes, and we've seen that witnessed in our church, when life takes a dramatic change, you're not shaken to the core. You're not destroyed. Because there are so many things, so many fears that can come that we're not even aware of. <clears throat> Excuse me. Who would have predicted COVID-19? You know, so many people have... In a moment, lost jobs, financial strain, mental health deteriorating. So many things can just collapse in an instant. Our foundation needs to be built on the rock, as David says. The rock of Christ is where we need to be able to stand and withstand the unexpected life-shattering moments. You know, when Jesus says, you know, build your house on the rock, don't be the fool and build it on the sand. The world, it presents the sand like gold. Fool's gold. And the rock looks hard and uncomfortable. Thank you. But the reality is that sand, that gold, will not support you. But the rock will. Well, this is um, the next part of the psalm leads us into the dual reality of the Christian experience, which we've already been talking about. And that's verses 7 to 12. There is a shift here. When we will have a look at it, you will notice that David expresses his real concerns of being vulnerable. He's, he is feeling really shaken, despite all of those words of such confidence before. You might be tempted to think, well, is there a contradiction here? No, he's just speaking the two realities that coexist at the same time. Being in prison and able to sing for joy, for example. And this is um, our, our next point, is that David, in verses 7 to 12, this is our point, David wrestles to remain secure in the Lord. In verses 7 to 12, 
He wrestles to remain secure in the Lord. He cries out to God. He has found the presence of God. We've seen that in the other verses. But he's afraid of losing it. I want you to hear the earnest pleading. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over the desire of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. David is experiencing genuine angst, emotional stress. And he's expressing this to God. We have the permission to do that as Christians. We're not like Buddhists who have to detach. We can dig deeper into that emotion, but it's how you respond in that emotion that is the difference between whether it's becoming idolatry and self-reliance or whether it is digging you deeper into the grace of God. He knows God hasn't forsaken him. There's that grace there as evidence in verse 10. And he will place his confidence and security in God, but he feels the reality, the weight, as if God were to leave him. He's in conflict. The reality of his painful soul, his painful experience, while simultaneously being committed to the goodness of God and his confidence in God. He's torn between the two realities. And that is so often the exercise of faith. The belief in God despite the circumstances. Both realities are real, but one is to overlay the other. Don't mix that up. The realities are both are real, but one is to overlay the other. Like those cellophane pieces of colour, you put one over and it changes and you can look through it. You must get the right cellophane. You know, David feels the darkness and the cloud of misery upon his shoulders. He knows God is his light. He knows God is his salvation. He knows he will not stumble. But it is the blindfold of experience against the reality of the sun. It is the clouds of life pressing him in, overhanging him, that covers out the glory of the sun. But he knows the sun's still there. The sun is always there. Where is his gaze? And that's why he says, all of these things, Lord, I'm feeling this, I'm expressing this. But his desire is still for God. He says, do not turn me over to the desires of my foes. Teach me your way, Lord. It's a matter of perspective, isn't it? Suffering isn't easy. And anyone who says suffering is easy, they haven't suffered very much at all. You've got something coming for you. I know for, um, in my experience, I, I went through a period in my life after school where I probably was suffering undiagnosed depression and it was really hard. And I remember just praying this sort of prayer, you know, just feeling a complete disconnection from God, a deep yearning in my heart 
And I felt like I was swinging in a complete emotional dark void. And God was like a thin rope dangling from the heavens. But I refused to let go. I refused to let go, trusting in the confidence that God was holding the rope and he was giving me strength through that rope. I didn't have to worry about feeling of letting go. God had me. What is pressing in on you at the moment, making you fearful, making you focus on one reality rather than the reality of God? What is pressing in on you at the moment that makes you feel forsaken? We all have those moments of feeling forsaken. What is making you question your salvation? Come to God. Be like David. Come to God. Cry out in the knowledge that God won't forsake you. Because though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive you. He will receive you. And that leads us to our final point. We see in verses 13 to 14 that David's security, despite his current reality of hardship, has found confident hope in the Lord. That's verses 13 to 14. David's security, despite his current reality of hardship, has found confident hope in the Lord. He encourages us. He says, take heart and wait confidently upon the Lord in the face of similar circumstances. Be strong and take heart. These are fighting words. This is a battle cry. You know, where we see um, Moses, God um, spoke to Joshua and Hezekiah, rallied the, um, the officers when facing the mighty Sennacherib's armies. These words are said. Be strong and take heart. These are words filled with the invigorating energy of knowing that victory will come. Victory will come. It may not come in the form that you expect. I highly doubt Joshua expected to defeat the first city in the promised land by walking around it. That's a very unusual battle plan. But that's what we see. We see wait for the Lord. Too often we're too tempted to rush in on our own strength. You know, preparing paths of escape, contingency plans. Well, if I do this, you know, I'll be safe there and I'll do that. And yet, No, we can see that that is a big mistake. Like Saul, the king of Israel, he was anxious with the troops running away. So what did he do? He sacrificed without the authority to do so. And the consequence was the stripping away of his kingdom. Now, we are gifted in the, the knowledge and the glory of Jesus Christ's grace that our salvation is never stripped away from us. But there are still consequences for the sinful choices we make. That's why, you know, waiting is not easy. It's a discipline. It's meaning accepting the lot that God has given you at the moment and that God will come through in his good time. If, this, if God was to come straight away, we wouldn't have had this psalm. But David writes his psalm because he is struggling in the current realities that are fear-producing for a long period of time. Why else would he write this? So it's not rushing into substitutes. This is what the world's all about. If you ha you'll be happy if you do that. Oh, you're feeling sad, just buy this product. 
You're feeling insecure? Get some makeup on you. It's not rushing into substitutes. It's not going to materialism, alcohol, sex, video games, anger towards God to attempt to deaden the path, deaden the pain that has been given to you. Because God has perspective that we don't. As we read in the book of Job, a man who suffers tremendously, loses everything, even his own physical health. Everyone turns against him. At the end of it, God reveals himself to him, and Job is left saying, your ways are higher than my ways. I repent in dust and ashes. Quietening our soul before the Lord. That means just refocusing on him. The noise of fear that can produce in us can be like resounding gongs or a you know, bass just booming in our ears. It's just too much. But it's refocusing. It's just saying, you know what, I feel this way, but God, you've got it. God, you've got it. Dad, I need you. I need you. That can be your prayer. It certainly can't be solved in a Google search. We see that this psalm is about placing confidence in God despite the very real reality of fear, fear-producing situations. And if we look from a biblical theological perspective, we look at, at how this applies to Christ, it makes us come even deeper into the goodness of God. Because Psalm 27 is about Jesus too. Psalm 27 is one mirror of the reality of God found in Jesus Christ. You know, God is not detached from our reality of pain and suffering. From our reality of fear. Who else was crying in that garden? You know, if there's any other way, take it. I want it. But there was still trust. But your, not my will, but your will. We see here that God, through Jesus Christ, enters into the human experiences, enters into that state of, of living in a life that was filled with many opportunities for fear. Yet he never sinned, never stumbled. He confronted the stronghold of death so we could have the stronghold in Christ. He became darkness so you could become the light of God. It was Jesus who left the security of the house of dwelling in God's presence from all the time, infinity to infinity, to come to this grimy, dirty, sin-filled, corrupt, fear-producing planet so that you could enter into his house to become his child. Like, let's think about it. That's mind-boggling. It's the grandness of God that he would come, he would step out of the security of being with the Father and the Spirit for all time to come here, leave his home so that you could have a home. This is the extravagant grace of God. It's almost too much to believe. It's almost unbelievable. But he did that. He left the security of his home to come here for you. And he did it willingly. Actually, it was the only plan. We read in Revelation, the lamb that was slain before the very foundation of the world. That means it was planned, it was ordained, it was the only path that was to be taken. And he did it 
despite the very real reality of fear. Muslims say, oh, Jesus didn't die on the cross. See, look at him. He's saying, I don't want to die. I missed the whole point. Jesus didn't want to die because that's very natural to not want to die as a God-man. But they failed to read the next line, but not my will, your will. And this is the life of a Christian. Not my will, but your will. David, not my will, your will. Jesus placed his security and confidence in God the Father and that their plan would work. He would pull through the other end and in doing so, he would bring many sons and daughters to his kingdom, his family. That's us. Man, that's exciting. That's a good reminder to me too. I forget this so often. But this is our reality. This is our reality. That our God would choose to be forsaken. To fall into the darkest darkness that you could ever experience. Take on the weight of sin with its soul-crushing, its all-encompassing darkness. And on that cross... He wasn't just fulfilling words in the Psalms. He was crying out genuinely. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken. So you would never, ever have to be forsaken. And this is the promise, the hope in God that we have. And may we rest in that. Let's pray. Dad, you are so good. You are so good. You sent your son. You willingly came, Jesus, and for that we are forever, eternally grateful. May we just step boldly into whatever comes next in our day, whatever happens in the next week, whether there be fear that you are good and you have got us. We place our security in you, knowing that you are a sure foundation. In your name, Jesus. Amen.